I, for the first time, understood disability, or if I understood that I didn't need to be embarrassed about being disabled, that I could have pride in who I was, and that it was possible to fight back against the, the system that was keeping us down. This is Berkeley Voices. I'm Ann Bryce. Today, we are sharing an interview with Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan. Together, they wrote, directed, and produced the documentary Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, about a free-spirited 1970s summer camp for people with disabilities in the Catskill Mountains of New York. Crip Camp premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2020 and was released in March of that year on Netflix. It went on to be nominated for an Academy Award. At UC Berkeley, all first-year and transfer students watched Crip Camp over the summer, so they'd have something in common to talk about throughout the school year, in classes, and at events designed to explore the film's themes. It's part of On the Same Page, a program of the College of Letters and Science. Hi, I'm Jim Lebrecht. I am the co-director, co-producer with Nicole Ninnam of the documentary Crip Camp. And I have been working a lot in the last number of years as an uh, activist to improve accessibility for people with disabilities in the entertainment business. And I'm Nicole Newdom. I'm an independent documentary film director now for over 25 years um, and longtime colleague of Jim Lebrex and, um, and his uh, partner in crime in directing Crip Camp. Great. And so your documentary came out in 2020, so um, about three years ago now. And for people who haven't seen it yet, can you give an overview of what it's about? Well, the film it kind of starts at a summer camp for people with disabilities that I went to in the very early 1970s. And it traces that group of people that came together there and how that community and that environment led to a lot of us getting involved with the disability rights movement that was happening that led ultimately to the passage of the ADA. But there's a lot more to the story than that. Yeah, I mean, um, Jim, what did you used to say? Or we used to say it was like wet, hot American summer meets the times of Harvey Milk. It's an it's an it's an activist history story. Um, it's it's the origin story of a um, of a political community, you know, um, a political and identity based community, the disability community. Um, but it's also a coming of age story, and um, and a. Um, a, a, a joyous sort of celebration of um, of youth and disability culture and coming together. Right. Jeanette was an opportunity to try to do some different kinds of things. When the camp started back in the 50s, it was the uh, traditional kind of camp program. As it evolved during the 60s and into the 70s, what we tried to do was provide the kind of environment where teenagers could be teenagers without all the stereotypes and the labels. And that was a byproduct of the times, you know, of social experimentation. 
When you got there, what was it like for you? And and why did you decide to go? Well, I decided to go there because in the summer of 69, uh, I was at another summer camp that I'd been going to for a number of years. But a bunch of Jeanette campers were there because there was no camp that summer. Their dining hall had burned down during the winter time. And I'm hearing about this camp where it's like, you know, you're in bunks and the counselors sleep in the bunks and there's music going. And literally there was this like, you you know, you might smoke dope with the counselors. And so, and this other camp was a rather kind of very kind of straight camp that was a little bit infantilizing. And so at the end of that summer, I said to my dad, you know, I've heard about this other camp and I, I want to go to Camp Jeanette next year. My experience of going there um, was just, it felt like a whole nother world. Just in the number of people with disabilities that were counselors and staff and the freedom that I felt there. And, you know, I, I mentioned this in the film, like when I was getting off the, looking out the windows window of the bus when we arrived, I wasn't exactly sure who was a camper and who was a counselor. And I think that's really indicative of one of the many things that made that camp special. For a few days in 1971, a film crew from the People's Video Theater came through the camp. They had these new video cameras that could play back footage to people they were videotaping. The filmmakers hoped it would be empowering for people to see themselves on video in real time. Um, there's some people here who have been filming. I told them that I, I would like them to please address us as a group so they could tell us their ideas and we could ask any questions that we wanted to. We are the People's Video Theater. It's Ken Marsh. I'm Howie Gutstadt, and that's Ben Levine over there. And we have been working with this equipment, which is half-inch videotape, which is simply closed-system television. Whatever actually you really want to say about yourselves, let us know. Let's have a lot of interaction. We had no idea that this footage still existed. I had remembered that a group of videographers had come to the camp um, in the summer of 71, and that they actually given me the camera, this luggable video system, uh, to do a tour of the camp. Here is uh, Girls One. Place for fun and frolic. <laughs> There's one of the campers, Valerie Valvona. Jerry! <laughs> is this necessary? I mean, is this important? <laughs> but I remember that the... Um, the name people was the word people was in the name of the group, but I, that's about as far as my memory went. So Nicole set out to find the footage. I was determined because I thought like, if that footage exists, it's like the Holy grail. After months of searching, she found a collection of these old video maker magazines that had been digitized. And at the very back of one magazine, there was an ad selling some footage from Camp Jeanette. 
And so then we had the name of the People's Video Theater, and then we could find out who were those members. And slowly we worked our way to a guy who was on the board of a radical bookstore in San Francisco, who was literally just across the bridge from us and had all the footage in his basement. So we were able to make an um, arrangement with them, and they were very supportive of, of our work. And we got hours of this footage, you know, on a hard drive delivered to Jim's office. And it was like, a, um, you know, like a trip back in time. Wow. What was it like for you, Jim, seeing the footage um, after all, the, all those years? Well, I probably needless to say it was really emotional and incredibly exciting. And, you know, for me and so many other people, summer camp was a real seminal moment in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing all these people that at that time, it it was like 45 years later. In the film, um, there are so so many moments um, of that are fun and honest and um, just really, I think really educational for a lot of people. And um, one that, cause I've seen it a few times um, since it came out, but that always comes into my mind is the crabs outbreak because it's just so funny. And it's just so awesome how everyone thinks it's so funny. <laughs> Wait, you want me to tell them what happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, two people got crabs, and um, they're spreading. They form a human body in there, and oh no! And they um, they uh, multiply. In the beginning, when this thing started happening last night, we found out what was going on. We were kind of all very hyper about it, and who the fuck knew what you know crabs were or lice or anything. I want to go over there. What's over there? <laughs> My girl. <laughs> Have you seen her today? Just from over here. Have you talked to it? Not really, just from across here. We're all quarantined. Yeah. It's, it's our first week anniversary today. <laughs> it's your first weekend anniversary and you can't even talk to it. That's right. We're thinking of collecting all the crabs and having a bake. We may have to burn the bastards out. There's another more serious moment that happens a few minutes later in the film that feels especially important. Campers are sitting around a big wooden table. Young Jim, who everybody calls Jimmy, is leading a discussion about their need for privacy and independence, and how difficult and frustrating it is to have to depend so much on their parents in a time in their lives when they want more freedom and to discover who they are as individuals apart from their families. Are you ready? We're here now. We're going to talk about parents, you know, and what kind of, how they bug us or how you like them, whatever it is. Maybe we should start off with that overprotectiveness, which I really hate. Does anybody want to start off? My parents are great, but sometimes I hate them because they're too great and they're too protective of me. And things that I want to do and I would love to do, they say, no, you can't do it. You're handicapped. And they keep reminding me of the fact that I'm in a chair. And they don't seem to realize that there's so much I could do. The wonderful thing about the People's Video Theater was, and you see this in our film, was that they said, you know, help us make a 
uh, a film about your camp. And then we went to them and said, we'd like to send a message to our parents. And that was the genesis of that round table discussion. I depend on my mother for some things. And so like, I can't really fight her as hard as I wish I could. What kind of things do you depend on? Well, some of the things like just everybody else depends on parents for like laundry and stuff, but like, like she's the person that orders special supplies when I'll need it and stuff. And if I'm in a position where I'm not able to do something, you know, like she's going to have to do it. And so, like, if you keep on bucking your mother saying, you know, fighting her constantly, then there's going to be a time when she's going to be very reluctant. That was one of the things that was always kind of stunning to me about looking at their interaction with us was that gave us agency. They treated us like teenagers and young adults. There was no, you know, there was no like, oh, let's go to the camp director and ask him how he takes care of these poor and fortunate people. I mean, this was kind of part of the ethos of the time. You know, we, people were completely looking at the paradigms of how we dealt with each other from different communities, giving respect and being inquisitive. And, um, I mean, it it was just wonderful. During the discussion, a camper named Nancy Rosenblum, who has disability-affected speech, shares her thoughts with the group about how everyone wants to be alone sometimes, but that she feels she's been denied the right to privacy. It's difficult for many of the campers to understand what she's saying, so another camper translates for her to the group. When Jim and I saw that when we were first going through the raw footage, we said, you know, sort of stop the presses. That's the center of the whole movie, you know? And we kind of developed this idea that the first act would should build to that moment. Because at that moment, you really do see how the community functions and that it's strong. And you can believe that something that's that powerful, because I don't think most of us have ever experienced that. Like most of us haven't been in, a community of people of varying abilities where everyone is so patient and so open and so, so holding everybody's perspective. So we felt it would be special for people. Um, And we thought if we can bring people up to that moment so that they feel that too, then there's kind of nothing we can't do. But then, um, you know, in showing some of that footage to people early on, just raw before we had edited the film together, um, some people would say, you can't show that. It's going to be too hard for people to watch and they won't sit through it and they'll feel too uncomfortable and da da da. But you know, it's the kind of scene where it's like it. First off, we had to do a lot of work to get to the point where people would hang in there with it and wouldn't feel that way about it. But also, it's the kind of scene that it it's actually an experience, right? Like you change in watching the scene. You're not watching something happen. You're actually a part of something and you um, you start the scene thinking one thing and you end the scene seeing things in a completely different way. And that that I think is of anything that we're proud of. That's probably the thing we're the most proud about, about how the film turned out, is that I think it genuinely shifts the lens through which people look at disability. And, you know, it's always so, it chokes me up actually, but like, it's always so amazing to me to think that like Nancy Rosenblum who, you know, died in the 1980s um, 
actually did that. Like she, she took the risk to say those things on camera so long ago. And then her, uh, you know, her contribution is now changing the lives of so many people through her, through, you know, the experience that people have of listening to her talk in the film. So anyway, it's, it's also, you know, for me, it's the most powerful thing in the film. At the end of 1971, when you leave Camp Jeanette, how did you, Jim, feel different? Um, and w- did the change happen kind of every year as you went to? And what did that feel like for you? Well, meeting Judy Human in the summer of 71 really set me on a course that I, for the first time, understood disability or if I understood that I didn't need to be embarrassed about being disabled, that I could have pride in who I was, and that it was possible to fight back against the the system that was keeping us down because she had prevailed in her lawsuit to get a teaching position. Um, over the course of, you know, these summers, um, it, you know, reinforced these ideas and when um, I, I wound up joining Disabled in Action, which is a group that she helped co-found in New York, what I learned there, it just really laid a foundation that I was able to build upon. After camp, Judy went on to become a leading activist for disability rights and independent living and spent her life fighting for inclusion. After Camp Jeanette, Crip Camp takes viewers out of the camp bubble and follows the lives of some of the campers. When we come out of the camp, we have a little bridge where Jim talks about what it was like to leave camp and how painful that was and how painful it was to kind of remind yourself that you're back in a world that is, you know, imposing limitations on you. At camp, I was in a whole other world. My first girlfriend and I'm popular and I'm and I'm going back to this world in which it's hard to get around sometimes I would just like go home after high school and go to bed for a few hours and just get away from the world I have friends but I'm the only person with a disability I had to try to adapt I had to fit into this world that wasn't built for me it never dawned on me that the world was ever going to change. And then we start to see, we meet Judy, but we meet her in news footage and news archival footage. And she's already an organizer and a person of note, and she's already out there. And she, and then we're, we're in, you know, Washington DC and we see a March and we notice that all these camp Genetians are in the footage of the March. We really started to see exactly how, there was a connection between what happened at camp and what happened in, in the activism. 
In 1972, Judy became a founding member of the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley. I want to see a feisty group of disabled people all around the world. I mean, a group of people who um, will not accept no um, without asking why. That's really what's so critical about CIL is that, you know, it's not a card that you get handed at the door, but it is kind of a demand that is expected of people in this community, and that is. If you don't respect yourself, and if you don't demand what you believe in for yourself, you're not going to get it. And she and other activists, some of whom went to Camp Jeanette, went on to organize countless protests, which led to legislation being passed, including the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a federal civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in everyday activities. There's one protest in the film, a 26-day sit-in at a federal building in San Francisco in 1977, that shows just how committed people were to fighting for disability rights. Handicapped citizens demonstrated at health, education, and welfare today. They accused Secretary Califano of weakening and delaying regulations to implement the 1973 law to protect the rights of the handicapped. the most well-organized. We had the expertise to not only have demonstrations, but to sustain them. I'm amazed at how many people stayed and what these people had to endure. Not having a backup ventilator, not having your usual personal care attendant, not having access to catheters. It's hard enough for me to take care of my body Here we're talking about quadriplegics who can't turn themselves during the middle of the night to prevent body sores and to be sleeping on the floor. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. After one of the longest occupations of a federal building in history, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 was finally implemented. It mandated that no one with a disability could be excluded or discriminated against in a program or activity that was receiving federal funding. Disability cuts across all strata of society, and people from Camp Jeanette and this movement were going to. The early gay pride parades. They were involved in many other communities, and including some very important people who were inside, who were members of the Black Panther Party. And because we were doing what you know that we were part of these communities and trying to support these other communities, when the time came for us to need help, people showed up. The beauty of this protest is that it was so effective and so powerful. And the really beautiful thing that happened when the film came out, which was the summer of 2020, is that that was a summer of a lot of organizing and activism and street protest. And we hadn't really in, in known that that was going to be true 
but what we found is that people were actually playing the film out, you know, um, outside at like, you know, encampments and gatherings in Portland and Seattle. The shocking thing, of course, in terms of how history played out and, and, um, and because of, you know, frankly, bigotry is that people didn't remember that it had even happened. So people were finding out about it for the first time, but they were not just finding out, out about, you know, some, some pro any old protest, they were finding out about like one of the greatest sort of most successful pieces of activism in American history, um, with the most far reaching impact. And so, so we, we wanted to really inspire, inspire people and kind of give them like a, a blueprint and a roadmap for how change can happen. And then it turned out that that landed in a period of our history when it, that had a lot of value. Crip Camp had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2020, where it won the Audience Award. It didn't open in theaters because of COVID restrictions, and instead was released on Netflix in March of that year. It went on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. We tried to approach the filmmaking process as a, an opportunity to create change wherever we could. And I think that we ended up being able to make a lot more change than we would have ever anticipated. Um, a lot of it through Jim's incredible activism, but everything in, from, you know, having a ramp up to the stage at the Sundance award ceremony for the first time and getting an elevator into the, um, you know, filmmakers uh, lounge. And we brought a whole cohort of, you know, d disabled colleagues to the Oscars. And that was really kind of a breakthrough moment in terms of images that would let young filmmakers from all over the world who might be disabled know that like the Oscars was a place, you know, um, that they could be a part of too, or should be a part of too. You know, I always believed, obviously, because I do this in the power of a narrative and a, and a well-told story to, to make change. But I think, um, I think this has um, exceeded my expectations for how how much it could that could happen, and I I feel like people people wanted it. They were ready for that paradigm shift, you know. Um, people have responded so you know so beautifully um, to it. I think they. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I said something similar to Judy Human, and I remember she said to me, no, that's not true. She said, they're just afraid that disabled people are going to sue them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's also true, right? And so I was wondering also if um, you, Jim, maybe could talk a little bit about um, your relationship with Judy Human throughout the years. You know, she passed a few months ago this spring. And um, one of the wonderful things about our film was it really connected me 
and, and Nicole, but really connected um, on a very, very close level that we wound up talking a few times a month. You know, my world before Nicole and I embarked on this film was really just about my sound work as a, as a mixer and sound designer for film. And I had a small business and, and I wasn't that politically active, but that part of my life really shifted. I sold my business and, and I've still continue to work a little bit in, in sound, but this has really kind of become my, my, my main focus of my life. And I could call Judy and say, I need to like check something with you or talk to me about this or how do we approach that? Um, and so I've lost a mentor. I've lost a friend and, um, and someone who always set an example for me. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it wasn't like she was my mother or anything like that, but it's like, you know, she, every, for everybody, she like cared about them. And, um, and, and so losing that love, um, was, has been really tough, but our relationship did go both ways. She was, although, you know, one of the interviews that never made it into our film was one that uh, we did with me and Judy at Berkeley Rep in the, in, just in the seating session with, uh, one day. And I told her that I had real regrets that I felt like I kind of left the movement uh, because I was working so hard in the theater and really trying to build a career. And, and she said, Jim, Jimmy, she always called me Jimmy, said, you never left. We all had our eyes on you. You were doing what the movement was about. You had a job and a life outside of disability activism. And it, um, that's just indicative of our relationship and the perspective she gave me. And, um, and I feel like, I want to do the best to carry on her work. I, I I always think about Judy's insistence that you be called Jimmy. Like we would be like in a meeting with like, you know, representatives from, you know, president Obama's production company and they would call Jim, Jim, and she would correct them and say, Jimmy. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we put that scene in the beginning of the film where she's in school and she meets, you know, Neil Jacobson and Nancy Rosenblum, who we were speaking about earlier. And she creates like a fierce, amazing, loving community with them. That was completely her orientation. And if you were lucky enough to get caught up in working with her, um, which everyone who knew her and loved her did get caught up in working with her because you couldn't, you kind of couldn't not, um, then you were a part of that you know, fiercely held community. And she had three phones going sometimes and she was, you know, just as connected to the guy she was, you know, buying meat from at the butcher store while she was talking to you as the neighbor that walked by that knew her and they had a kid and she loved the kid and she's asking, how is the kid growing? And, you know, but it was seemingly like endless her capacity to hold tight to people and 
uh, and really see them and really appreciate them and, and love them. So, yeah. I mean, we all, she's a, it's a huge loss. I was just observing as we were making our film to call that I, <clears throat> I felt like she treated you so much like me. She really cared about you. Yeah. Yeah, she did. And Howard and, you know, like, yeah, like she, yeah, she, uh, yeah, she loved our team. And the, the, you know, the thing that makes me the happiest, um, I think about, you know, the process is that one time we were driving back after a shoot, we had filmed some footage of her in her old neighborhood and in Brooklyn and we were driving back and she said, you know what I like about this project? I like that we're all doing it together. So for On the Same Page, students, um, all incoming students at UC Berkeley are have watched or will watch Crip Camp. Um, and I'm wondering what you hope they will feel from it, take away from it. We had a couple of goals with our film. One of them was to reframe what disability meant to people with and without disabilities. We also wanted to start conversations. And there have been thousands and thousands of conversations that have been started. And speaking for myself, I hope that this plants a seed within all of these students that they do talk, they do think differently. And that this is something they hold for the rest of their lives that will make the world a better place. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, I feel like college in a way is like camp, you know? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's young people coming together, learning how to relate to each other across difference, dreaming of ways the world could be better, figuring out ways to activate on that and actualize that. So I'm very excited to think what a, cl a college class who all saw this film, you know, how, how it might shift their perspective around how they relate with each other, how they work to create inclusive community, um, and how, and how they, they might think about allyship and organizing and coming together to make the world a better place. I think, um, and, and also how they might, you know, hopefully, forever see disability as a as an integral part of that, you know? Um, I mean, Jim helped to start an organization around um, inclusion of disabilities uh, and in media called One in Four, and it's called that because one in four people have a disability. So that means one in four students in the incoming class at Berkeley do too. So I don't know if there's ever been a, a disability-specific theme for this, but... Um, if not, it's like, you know, um, it's really important and great that, that it is, and it's going to mean a lot to so many people, but it's a huge honor for us. We're, we're completely thrilled by it. You know, it doesn't even quite seem like it could be real. It's really fantastic. Who needs an Academy Award? 
<laughs> this is especially in our hometown, you know, and and yeah. um, you know, I yeah, it's it's a wonderful honor. Yeah, you know, we wanted the film to make people to make everyone want to hold this as like a, a great American story, you know, like when you think about like you know. Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, you 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 feel proud that that story is a part of the story of America, you know. And we wanted people to feel that way about about this story too. And for people coming to Berkeley and living in Berkeley and being a you know a part of that kind of continuous history of disability community, um, you know, I, I would constantly tell people I was working on this film who lived in Berkeley, and they would say to me. Oh, I always noticed there were a lot of people zooming around in wheelchairs around here, but I never knew why, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's crazy that such a seminal, important thing played out here. And even the people here don't really know about it, but certainly for people who are coming in and becoming a part of that community and history and the continuity of that story as, uh, as students at UC Berkeley, it should be something that they know. A lot has changed in the decades since the disability rights movement began and the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. At Berkeley today, there is a disabled students program, a disability lab, a disability community cultural center, and a disability studies minor, among other accessibility projects and offices. But, Jim says, there are still so many barriers that exist. The struggles today are as life and death as they were back in 1977. Those people put their bodies on the line because they felt like if we don't do it now, when? And we'll never have this leverage again. But yet this was truly uh, putting your life on the line to make a, for your own survival. And today, the work that people are doing is really is about survival, about not being, it's about human rights. It's about not being left out and to enjoy the freedoms that um, for many other people, they just take for granted. And there's no, there's no defendable reason for not enabling us to be full members of society. People were surprised at the joy and humor in our film. And I've been become hyper-focused on the concept of joy. And that if you take something away from this that's important among all the other things we've been talking about, is that find the joy in what you are doing. Although Camp Janed shut down because of financial hardship, first in 1977 and again in 2009, after it had reopened years later, its spirit lives on in Crip Camp and all those who experience it. On September 14th, there will be a screening of Crip Camp, followed by a conversation with Nicole and Jim in UC Berkeley's Zellerbach Hall. The discussion will be moderated by anthropology professor Karen Nakamura, 
who leads the campus's disability lab. The event is free and open to the public, and registration is encouraged. While the film screening will be in person only, the conversation will be available in person and live streamed on YouTube. Learn more about the event at onthesamepage.berkeley.edu. I'm Ann Bryce, and this is Berkeley Voices, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs at UC Berkeley. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We also have another show, Berkeley Talks, which features lectures and conversations at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.